it's great to see everybody though. It's, it's, it's Sundays are, it's, I don't know about you. Uh, for me, it's been a really busy week. It's been kind of a, a stressful, uh, exhausting week. And so to, to uh, come here and to see friendly, familiar faces and uh, to be with you and to, to sing alongside you is, uh, it's, it's, it's good for my soul. And so I, I, I hope, I hope you, you receive as much as, as I do from um, just being in a room together and having that, uh, that opportunity. So anyway, that's, I think that's pretty much all I've got on, on the announcements. So great to see you. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Micah, chapter 6. So what we've been doing in this, also if you have one of our bulletins, all the passages, not uh, the Micah passage actually, is not, I was about to say all the passages, the first passage is not, but this is going to be a little bit of review. But uh, most of the passages that we're looking at today are on the bulletin. So uh, what we've been doing with this series is we started this, uh, I guess, four weeks ago now, or give or take, you know, guest speakers notwithstanding. But um, what we've been trying to do with this series is we've been looking at the question of what does it look like to deconstruct and then reconstruct what it is that we believe and what it, what it is that we think. And I, I have talked a lot about my own particular journey and my own interpretation of how these kinds of things go. And um, if, if you've been in a place where you've had to sort of take a look at all the things that you believe, and the, the image I keep using is the image of like a room, like is it as if you have a whole bunch of mental furniture and what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out where all the furniture goes. And for a lot of us, we have to take all the furniture out of the room and, and kind of empty ourselves out and to think uh, in terms of, okay, what, what goes back in, what needs to stay out, what needs to be moved, what needs to maybe get upgraded a little bit? Um, because as we grow and as we age and as we change, um, we, we discover that new things are, like things are, some things are more important than they used to be, some things are less important than they used to be, some things we maybe were given, were, were uh, taught to assume that perhaps were harmful or not that useful to us. And so we've been trying to figure out like, okay, what does all that look like? And so we've been taking the, these assumptions and these ideas and these, these thoughts, and we've been taking them out and kind of examining them and asking, okay, what goes back in? And what do we, what do, we do with these, these things and these ideas and these questions? And, uh, and the word we use for that is reconstruction. And so sometimes reconstruction is taking something out and saying like, okay, that needs to go. And like, as I begin to sort of reframe all the ways that I, th I think of things, these things need to go. But sometimes it means taking something and developing a healthier, more mature understanding of that thing. And today we're gonna be talking about a thing that I think we will all like sort of agree is a virtue. Um, and it's, and, and, but the question then becomes like, yeah, but what does it look like to, to sort of allow our thinking on this to sort of grow and mature as we think about these kinds of things? So, which brings us to Micah 6. So in Micah chapter 6, you have this prophet, and we, we looked at this a couple of times. This is sort of a series inside of a series. Um, but what this prophet is doing in Micah chapter 6 is he's doing a little bit of reconstruction, and he's asking questions about what are the things that in, in the world of the, the ancient prophets, the, the term they would have used would, would have been something along the lines of what pleases the gods? or what, what is pleasing to God. And what Micah's doing here is he's asking questions about what exactly are we, what, what has value? And what are the things that are good? What are the things that we were taught that were good that maybe aren't that good? In fact, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and read beginning in verse six. Uh, he, he writes, um, he says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted one? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a thou with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions? Which, by the way, several points along the way throughout the scriptures, they very specifically say, do not do that. So, um, so he's, he's using other, like, 
traditions and he's saying like, are these the things that please the gods? Are these the things that make um, the divine happy? And then, um, and so he says, uh, okay, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then in verse eight, he answers his own question. He says, he, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good? So he's doing, he's asking questions about, are all the, are all the assumptions and all the practices and all the rituals are these the things that are good or are, are they actually in some ways like not as useful as we thought or in some ways actually a little bit toxic and harmful? And then he says, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And if you have uh, a Bible with footnotes in it, you might see that humbly is also can easily be translated here as wisely. So humbly or wisely. So um, so the, we, we've talked already in this series about what it means to do justly. And that, that one, that, that's a little bit easier to sort of conceptualize because we understand um, how, what justice looks like. And, uh, and we're able to sort of like put arms and legs and give examples to, to that idea. And then last week we talked about love and mercy sort of bridges the gap between these two things. And then this last thing here, which is walk humbly with your God. What does that even mean? Um, I think we all sort of have our own sort of conception of what humble means. And this is what I mean when I say sometimes reconstruction means allowing our understanding of a thing to grow or mature or develop as we go. Because I think all of, I, I, doubt, I doubt most of us ever had a time where we thought like humility was not useful. I think, I think most of us have, have a, a sort of general understanding that humility, at least humility for others, is, uh, it, it ha has some amount of value. I was just, this week I was just, uh, a, a friend of mine was showing me, um, there's a guy uh, who, who is a, an aspiring country music uh, artist. Uh, and so what this guy has done is he has bought like half a million Twitter followers because that's the thing you can do. Um, and so, uh, and he like kind of famously has been outed as somebody who bought up a bunch of Twitter followers um, because the guy's music is objectively bad. And like, I, and I, I will like, um, and I'm not, I'm, this is not an indictment. There, there are lots of country music artists that I really like. This guy's music is bad. But what he's done is, and, and, what, what, and how you know he's bought, how they figured out that he bought all these Twitter followers is he has like half a million Twitter followers, but his Spotify, uh, like the, the number of listens he has on Spotify is in like the couple of dozens. You know what I mean? So like, like nobody's listening to his music, but somehow he has like, like so many Twitter followers. And so, um, and so what this guy's done, and so what he, he believes that like everybody is bought into like the lie he's created for himself. And so what he started to do is he started to like create videos of himself offering advice to other musicians, much more famous successful musicians on what they should be doing <laughs> to advance their careers. And it's so embarrassing, you guys. If you watch, like it is, does anybody know who I'm talking about? If, if you, if, no, okay, I'm not gonna say the guy's name. Um, I would not do that. Um, Mostly because I can't really remember what it is, but um, but I could I, I could text my friend uh, between services, um, but but I won't because that is not the way Jesus would do this. Um, so what uh, what this guy so so this guy has created a persona for himself. And the whole person, I mean, and what he thinks he's, he's created is a persona of a very successful musician. But what he, the persona he's actually created is someone who is so full of himself that he doesn't realize that everybody is laughing at how, like, obviously he's trying to like puff himself up. And the the thing about when you try and make yourself a big deal, and everybody sort of has the sense that yeah, but you're not. It's super hard to look at, and it, it, it is. It's one of those things. It's very off-putting, and. 
and I, I think we all know, I think we're all, like everybody here, if, if, you, if you saw these videos, you would cringe, I promise you. I think everybody here, we all know that a lack of humility, uh, th th this kind of posturing, we all know that it's socially off-putting. We're, we're, fully, we're fully on board with that. But the question then becomes, yeah, but why is humility, why is walk humbly with your God, or walk wisely, why, why or whatever, uh, however you want to translate that word, why, why is this one of the three, if Micah has three things it, that he says, this is what it means to be like, to, th this is what it looks like to put things back together. This is what reconstruction looks like. It begins with do justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Why is this one of the things? I mean, again, we, we know that it's socially off-putting to not be this way, but why is, that, why is this such a highly regarded virtue? So you could argue, and I, and I mean, I would argue that you can't have the other two. You can't have any amount of growth or, or you can't do any amount of deconstruction or reconstruction. You cannot become more oriented towards love and justice with, um, without some amount of humility, without, without the ability to say like, are there things here that I need to learn? Are there things here, are, are there opportunities here for me to grow? Because if I am, if, if, if I'm the guy making the videos trying to teach everybody else how to be more successful, where like to, to go to places that I've never been, and if, if, I, if, I, feel, if I feel like I have nothing left to learn, then how much more like how much more loving or justice oriented can I get? And I, I realize the the weird like double sided irony of me like standing up in front of people and talking about <laughs> about not standing up in front of people and talking about like what you should be doing with yourself. So I'm, what, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reflect my own um, kind of journey and my own you know need for this. And I, ho I hope it comes across that way. My, my, my hope is, is to never come, like, to stand up here and say, like, I'm the expert and I've had this whole thing figured out. My hope is that uh, the tone that I'm trying to set here is, is always, I have a lot to learn. And here are the things that I have, learning, I have learned and am learning. And, um, and I just, I, I, my, my hope is to invite people along on the journey. So, uh, and not to be like, I've, had this, I've got this whole thing figured out and, I, and you need to figure it out just like I have or something like that. I don't, I don't think that's very useful. So, but I would argue like one dimension of like why humility is such an important virtue for Micah is, is for this exact reason because like we have so much, we have so far to go and we have so much to learn and how, how much more oriented towards love and justice can we be if we think we have no, if we, if, if we feel like we have nothing new to learn from all this. So there's that dimension of it. But as I was preparing for it, I actually like, I, there's another dimension to this that I, I thought, this is interesting. And, and I kept coming back to this story about Jesus. And so we're gonna look at a very specific example where Jesus is challenged in some very specific ways and that require some amount of humility. Um, and, and maybe we can find ourselves in these challenges. So I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter four, which is where we're gonna be for most of the morning. And if you have, uh, if you have one of our bulletins, that, that's where it is also. This is, a, this is a famous story about Jesus. And this is the, the, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So we'll just, we'll just jump in and we'll kind of look at it verse by verse. And we'll see if there's anything here for us to, to gain. So in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, um, huh? <laughs> so in, in, then in, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, um, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so... Um, so already we have, and the, the um, I'm sorry, 
in, in, in verse four, I'm sorry, in, in verse two, it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So a couple of things. One, the 40 days and 40 nights is significant because in Hebrew consciousness, one of the defining moments in, in history is the 40 years that was spent in the book of Exodus, the 40 years that was spent in the wilderness after their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And so already the 40 days and 40 nights is supposed to be sort of a, a callback to another story and another time that's meant to be about liberation and freedom and new discovery of, of the self and of, of the collective, of society. But then also there's this interesting thing here where it says, and Jesus was hungry. And I think we often tend to kind of gloss over the more human aspects of Jesus's like character, but hunger is a very human experience. And we tend to think of Jesus as like, again, like a superhuman type of figure who doesn't have human experiences. But hunger is a human experience. And there are other places in the scriptures where Jesus is described as things like tired or angry or frustrated. And like these are all human emotions. These are, these are all symbols, signals that, that are telling us that Jesus is sharing in the human experience. So, so, one, so one part of this is we have the 40 days and 40 nights, which is important to the, to the history of the story. But we also have, yeah, this is a human thing that Jesus is going through. So then in verse three, um, it says, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this is, the, the thing that's interesting here is the challenge. Jesus' response is also interesting, but the thing that, that continues to get me is where the tempter begins. The tempter begins with a conditional phrase. And the, the phrase here is, if you are the son of God. Why does he start this way? Whoever said that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, what's interesting is right before this scene, and it's, it's, it's helpful to, to remember that in the original manuscripts of these, there are no chapter breaks. And so what happens in chapter three bleeds into chapter four because the original authors here did not make these chapter break distinctions. That happened later in translations so that we could have, like, find things more quickly. So the original text, would not have separated chapter three from chapter four in the way that we do. So it's helpful to ask the question, what happened right before this? What is the language that is used to describe Jesus right before this happened? So look at verse 16 in chapter three, and this is in your bulletin right above chapter four. So in, in right before the temptation scene, what we have in, in verse 16, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So just three verses later, you have this tempter saying, If you are the Son of God, then do this. This is a conditional phrase that is a response to a thing that, that has just been declared about Jesus. So at this point... In, in where, where God proclaims that Jesus is, where, where God says, this is my son, I love him, I'm pleased with him. At this point in the story, Jesus has not done any miracles. He hasn't brought anybody back from the dead. He hasn't preached any sermons yet. In and so he's done nothing. He has accomplished zero. And in spite of his lack of accomplishments, the, word of, the words of God here are, this is my son, I love him, and I am pleased with him. The tempter begins the story by going directly for Jesus' core identity, if you are the Son of God. This gives us a lot of insight into how temptation and self-doubt work, doesn't it? Because our darkest impulse, I would argue our darkest impulses often begin with an attack on our core identity. The things that make us less of who we are begin with the question, are you really someone worth loving? Are you really someone who, who people care about? 
For those of us who believe our value comes from what we do or the opinions of others or how much we've accomplished or how many items we can check off of our lists on any given day, this is a real struggle. So in fact, uh, just this week, I had to go back to the town where I grew up um, for a funeral. I hadn't been there um, in, I, I couldn't tell you the last time I was there. It's, I was probably in college the last time I was there. So it's been like 15 years since, um, since, since I've been there. And, and I went back and I went to this funeral and so many people that I knew like half a lifetime ago are there. And I, I continued, and I remember, like, and I'm at a funeral, so it's not about me at all, but I'm, I keep, like, running into people and seeing people and, like, um, how are you? How have you? How have you been? What have you been up to? And there's this narrative going through my head of, you are not impressive enough to be here right now. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a class reunion or anything. It was a funeral. Like, what am I doing? Why, why is there a part of my brain? It's because I'm an Enneagram 3. But why, uh, why is there a part of my brain that won't stop saying to me, like, you are, you are not as impressive as you, as you wish you could be uh, to, this, to this person or to this group of people. And so there, there's this like, deep self-consciousness that I carry with me, and I didn't realize that I still had it in me until I went back and, and was talking. And, it, and I know that the people I'm talking to aren't thinking that way because it's like, the, the whole thing is not, is, the whole event has nothing to do with me. And, like, and we're, we're just catching up. And I hope they weren't thinking that too because I, I didn't think that about anybody else, but there's this narrative that runs through my head of, I am only as good as my best accomplishments. And I am, o- I am, only, I am only as valuable as my current, like, um, my current status in the world. And, and so there, there's this narrative that I carry with me, and what that does is it makes me, it, it, it offers like the temptation to sort of like in, inflate and to, um, and to exaggerate, which I didn't do because I, one of the helpful things about like knowing your own Enneagram type is the ability to catch yourself before you do those things is the ability to say like, oh, I understand what this is. I, I know, I know that this is, this is the inner three, um, trying to, um, trying to make its way out of me. And so, um, and so thankfully I was able to sort of like catch myself and, and not, not go down that road, but that's what's going on here in this temptation scene. In the temptation scene, it's the tempter goes right after Jesus's, like, if you really are the son of God, if you really are loved by God, then prove it. And, or, and, and the thing that happens right before the story, the, it, what, it, what it shows us, though, is that's not how this works. You, you don't have to prove it. You, you are loved regardless. You are loved before you accomplish anything and what you accomplish or what you do or the number of things you check off your list that doesn't change how loved you are look at in the book of ephesians um this is not in your uh, notes but uh, in the book of ephesians there's this interesting the, the book of ephesians i think is one of the most fascinatingly structured books in the, in the entire bible and the reason for that is this because there are all these things it's it's six chapters long and the first three chapters contain no commandments and so look, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise be to, God the fa- to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God pre- predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of, for, of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us 
in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And then if you jump down to verse 11, it says, In him, in God, we were also chosen, or in Jesus, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And then in verse 13, it says, And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then if you jump down to chapter 2, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, in which, um, or I'm sorry, in just beginning of verse 1, it says, as for you, you were dead, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then in verse 5, it says, um, or I guess in verse 4, it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then in verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in verse 19, it says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of, of God's household. And it goes on like this. And it sounds like a, a bunch of like high theological sorts of language. But what's interesting here is um, Paul, this writer, continues to use these descriptive terms to say, this is how you used to believe. This is how you used to see yourself. But this is how you are. You used to see yourself as people who were far away, but I tell you, you were brought near. You used to think of yourselves as strangers and foreigners, but you are part of the family. And so there's this constant sort of reiteration of, this is who you used to believe that you were, and this is who you actually are. You are loved, you are received, you are, you are, you are given this thing without any strings attached. So, in, in, so what happens in the book of Ephesians is you don't see any commandments until chapter four out of six. So for Ephesians chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, all through the first entire half of this book, all you see is Paul telling people, this is who you are. You are loved. You are, you are accepted. You are received. No, again, no commandments, no instructions, no um, do this or do this. You see no, no one is given anything to do until they are firmly aware of who they are. So anytime a religious structure or any structure tells you that your value comes from how you perform or who you please, this is diametrically op opposed to the teachings of the scriptures. The scriptures continue to emphasize you are loved, you are accepted, you are, this is freely given to you. So Jesus is responding to this, this awareness of like, yeah, I don't have to prove to anybody that I'm loved, I am loved. And that's all that's going on here. And so Jesus has a path. And this tempter understands that the best way to disrupt Jesus's path is to undermine his core identity and his own God-given identity. So then, if we keep going, if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, um, because the best way to get somebody off of their path is to make them question who they are. So if you... Um, if you go to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, there it is again, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, the, it, it's again this conditional thing. If God is good, then prove it, or then make God prove it. And the temptation here is to exert some amount of, and there, there's, there's a whole question here about like the goodness of God and like it is, 
how can God be good in the, in the face of suffering? This is a real question. This is not a good faith argument, though, that, that, this particular, that is being made in this particular situation. What's happening here isn't just a, a question of, like, is God good? The question here is about control. And so it, it, it is make God prove it if God is good. And the temptation here is to exert some amount of control or, manipulate, or to manipulate the divine for one's own satisfaction. And Jesus' response in verse 7 is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus is basically saying, what kind of God would play by your rules? What, what kind of God can be controlled by you? And so um, then you get the third temptation in verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So this is a straight shortcut to just vanity. And then in verse 10, it says, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels attended him. So the third temptation is, again, he's going straight for vanity and ego. And Jesus' response is uh, that Jesus is aware he's on a path. And the path isn't about coercion or about, like these last two temptations are about coercion, they're about manipulation, they're about control, and, or t- and taking shortcuts and demanding more power and more control. And Jesus never takes the bait. Jesus' response is, no, 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 I'm on a path. I have a particular path, and my path cannot be disrupted by, power, by, a, by an attempted power grab or the, or the need to have more right now or to posture to make myself like more inflated than I really am. Look at Philippians chapter two. In Philippians two, there's a Paul, this, again, this, this writer Paul just creates a description of Jesus, of Jesus's character. And then in, uh, so in verse five of Philippians two, it says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to, God, to his own advantage. Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made, in human, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus never grabs for power. Jesus humbles himself. So how does Jesus embody the, this commandment to walk humbly that, that we see in, in the book of Micah? He remember, first, the first thing he does is he remembers he's loved. He remembers that he, his value does not come from how much power he has or how, how much control he has. He stays true to his path, and he never demands more power than he's been given. So walking humbly doesn't mean being self-deprecating or thinking that we're worthless. Walking humbly doesn't mean just like an aw shucks um, Kind of, kind of attitude. In fact, I, I know a lot of people um, growing, growing up in churches as I did, I, I, like anytime somebody was told like, hey, you did a good job with something, the go-to response was, well, it was just all God. You know what I mean? Which sounds super like holy and super spiritual. And what it is, it's a head fake towards humility, but it's, it, it's like, hey, like I am so pious and righteous that I like I like got like I am channeling the divine, and that is that is why you enjoy the thing that I did so much. And so, and so the appropriate response to hey you did a good job would be a better response would be, thank you. <laughs> That's that would be better, um, be, because walking humbly doesn't mean just like an aw shucks. I just it, 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 it that that's um, that that's not what we're talking about when we talk about walk humbly. 
walk humbly with your God simply means resisting the urge to grab for more power and holding the importance of other people and their respective paths in our hearts and the ability to say, like, I am on a path and the path that I'm on is important and, and, to, and to, to follow that path even when the path is very difficult and even when the path maybe goes to some places that we didn't expect it to. So who we are, who are we instead? Who, who is, like, if we're deconstructing and reconstructing, what are we putting back together? Well, we are loved and we have a path. So maybe you struggle with loving yourself or accepting the fact that you are worth loving. That's a real struggle that lots of us deal with. And I think the story of Jesus that we see is this reminder of, no, you are loved before you accomplish anything. Your value does not come from all the accomplishments and all the power and all of the boxes that you've checked off. Your, the fact that you are loved comes from the fact that you are loved. You are loved by God, period. So may, maybe that's your struggle. And this is this story, this invitation to walk humbly with your God is first, of, first and foremost a reminder that you are loved and your accomplishments aren't part of that equation. Or maybe you're struggling with your path and you feel like things aren't going the way that they're supposed to. But maybe that's part of the path. Maybe, maybe the path has led you to some pretty unexpected places and maybe that's okay. I would argue that the most interesting stories often are the ones that, that would include some unexpected, some very unexpected turns. How many people do you know who, like, they, if, if you were to sit down and talk to them and they were to tell you about, like, all their successes and how great, how, like, how just, they're, they're just killing it all the time. How boring is that conversation? You know what I mean? How, like, the more interesting conversation is usually, like, well, I was headed in this direction and then there was this disruption. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm on this new path or I'm on, like my path to me to some unexpected places and it involved some pain, it involved some struggle, it involved um, some disappointment, and it involved a little bit of like, well, what are we even doing here? Like those, th those are the stories that are way more interesting, right? The, like why does Jesus's ministry story begin with him struggling in the desert and him having to resist these temptations and him having to sort of really wrestle with, am I the son of God? A am I loved? Am I, like, is it better for me to be on my path or is it better for me to, like, why, why does the story begin here? Because those are the better stories. The better stories are the ones that do involve some amount of struggle and do involve some amount of, like, well, I didn't see this coming, but I guess this is, this is part of the journey. So maybe, um, so maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe you feel like things aren't going the way they're supposed to, but that's part of the path. Um, I, I was just sharing with somebody before uh, we started, or, uh, uh, before we started the service, that um, since we came back, like since just after Easter, I've started working part-time in a call center um, just to, to earn some extra money. And um, for, for a while, this was, like the church was my full-time thing. And this is what I would spend all week on. Um, but because, but the thing is, we just got done with the pandemic. Um, there are, there, there, were, there were some unexpected turns in our path. And that required some improvising and some, some going in directions. Like, I did not see myself at 40 working part-time in a call center and pastoring uh, the, other, the, the other 90 hours or whatever it is, like however many hours a week that, I, that I've been doing this. Um, and so I, I didn't see, like, if, if you were to ask me when I, when I was graduating from college, if you were to ask me to, like, chart out my path, that wouldn't have been part of it. Getting fired eight years ago would not have been part of the path if I had had to chart it out. There, there are certain things, um, having the entire building flood and having the, the, the ceiling cave in, I would not have put, put that on 
I, I would not have put that on my own path. Sometimes the path goes to weird, unexpected places. But it was, so it wasn't part of the plan, but for right now, it is part of the path. You know what I mean? And so maybe you're on a path and you're finding yourself thinking like, why, why is this so difficult? Or why am I having to sort of confront these things right now? Why, why, why has the path taken me here? Well, maybe it's because that's part of the path. And, and, and the journey is to ask questions about what, what does this season have to teach me? Maybe that's what it means to walk humbly, is, is not to say like, well, I'm above this, um, but instead to say, what does this season have to teach me? What do I have to learn from, from this period of time? So what does it mean to walk humbly? What does it mean to put the furniture back in where that, is, um, that, that has a place of prominence? One, it's remembering that you're loved. Um, I don't think humility involves self-deprecation or, or, or self-loathing. I think humility begins with an understanding that you were loved and the ability to love yourself as God loves you. So may you remember that you are loved and may you travel your path with wisdom and with humility. May you learn from whatever situation you find yourself in right now. And may we uh, be a church that um, continues to invite people into that type of journey. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this invitation to walk humbly. We thank you for this beautiful, profound example of Jesus um, remembering that he is loved and choosing a, a path of humility and not a path of grabbing for power and posturing. Uh, for those of us who find ourselves on an unexpected part of the path, may we be faithful to our callings. May we learn from the situation that we're in. And may we never, ever forget that we are loved in spite of where we find ourselves on our paths. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.